to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Today, I've got a guest who uh, I, I blindly reached out to one of those contact forms on a website. I was actually kind of the background of it is was kind of I was working on a grad course uh, for a college that I help out at. And and I had to do some work on reason and 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 theological construction. And I said, I want to I want to dive into modernism, postmodernism. And then our topic for today, metamodernism. And I found this guy's videos. And I said, this, these are great. And then I started doing some reading and I said, you know what? I want to do a podcast. And so blindly reached out to Brendan and he actually responded, which I'm thankful for. And so here we are today, Brendan, uh, Brendan Dempsey is my guest. Brendan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, this is really exciting. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, just for my guest, just to let you know, Brendan is a writer, a poet. He's a farmer, uh, director of Sky Meadow Institute, which is an organization dedicated to promoting systems-based thinking about things that matter most. He has a master's in religion and art from Yale University, author of a seven-volume Metamodern Spirituality series, which seems like you wrote uh, a seven-volume thing while I was trying to finish one thing. So... Uh, <laughs> I get more power to you. And and most recently, a book called Metamodernism or the Cultural Logic of Cultural Logics. Brendan, um, again, thanks for being here. But you know, that's just the the blurb. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you can let our guests know a little bit more about you, your background, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. Yeah, I was really excited when you reached out um, because I don't often have as many opportunities as I'd like to speak about theological matters. Um, I kind of hang out in a metamodern spirituality discussion space. And um, so it's 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 pluralistic. It's uh, many different traditions kind of show up uh, in the conversation. But my background, my personal biographical uh, background is um, is in the Christian tradition. I grew up in a um, uh, Pentecostal kind of uh, more conservative sort of evangelical strain of Christianity. Um, and uh, that was very important to me when I was younger to the point where I thought, well, I'm either going to become a pastor or I'm going to uh, become a professor of biblical studies at a seminary. And I opted ultimately for the latter. Um, that was sort of my career track, um, went to college uh, and double majored in religious studies and classical civilizations, uh, you know, the, the classics part, uh, purely to learn the Greek and the Hebrew and the Latin and the history, um, in support of the biblical studies work. Um, and, uh, it was in college where I got really deep into some historical critical studies of the Bible, a kind of more, uh, modern modernist, I guess you could say, kind of approach to the study of uh, the Christian faith. And, uh, that was, uh, really interesting in the sense that, um, it was a very sort of disorienting experience compared to a lot of the tradition that I grew up with um, and a lot of the beliefs about, say, the composition of the Bible and the historical Jesus and, and the sorts of um, facts that uh, I was raised with compared to what I was reading in, in the scholarship. There was a divergence there that caused a lot of uh, uh, cognitive dissonance that led to a real kind of struggle. Um, and ultimately, uh, that kind of just got to a breaking point, And I 
uh, sort of gave up the whole thing. Um, I, I decided I couldn't be a seminary professor anymore. I wasn't sure if I believed any of this stuff anymore. Uh, really kind of sent me in this uh, direction of sort of deconstruction and kind of a crisis of faith. Um, and from there, I wound up uh, turning to the arts and and getting very much into literature and uh, uh, spent four years in an artist kind of artist collective in Burlington, Vermont, and just voraciously reading and writing. Um, and ultimately, through the exploration, actually, of art and poetry in particular, I started finding my way back to uh, this the importance of spirituality and meaning and the potential ground um, for something, a meaningful orientation to existence, but, you know, through, uh, through beauty, through aesthetics, actually at the time is what I was sort of holding on to. Um, and that was able to kind of push me back in the direction of theology. Um, I went, uh, and returned and got my master's at Yale Divinity School in religion and the arts, learned a lot there, studied more theology there, uh, including mystics and, and kind of some wonderful medieval theology. And, um, and uh yeah and 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 i guess we'll get into the meta modern stuff that's sort of a yeah. parallel track to all this but um these days i uh i run sky meadow institute out of uh this retreat center where i live and and uh and caretake for it's uh, called sky meadow it's in vermont and um yeah i'm very interested in applying uh systems based thinking and relational complexity based thought to the stuff that matters most which is in in my particular passion uh spirituality meaning making etc uh issues that relate to kind of our cultural uh so, social moment and um that's in a in a blurbier blurb that's me at the moment um and uh yeah perfect yeah uh i i have a deep question there to start with but then sure. also just realizing that being at Yale, then you must have you must have had Miroslav Volf, who's been on our podcast before. Mm. Uh, I'm assuming you had him as a professor, maybe not. So no, uh, I actually didn't wind up taking a class with him, but oh, um, no. I was very I was very close with Christian Wyman. I don't know if you know his work at all. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, he also works very closely uh, with him. Uh, I what in the Center for Well Being or something, right? Um, they yeah. do all that well being research. Um, so yeah, that wasn't a part of my particular uh -huh. trajectory, but. Uh, I got some other luminaries while I was there. So I want to start. So, you know, I, I said at the top that this is a, we're going to be exploring the concept of metamodernism, something that I ultimately started exploring somewhere around. I mean, it's 10 years ago. It's really about 10 years old, at least in some kind of mm -hmm. not fleshed out sense, but at least in some kind of framework sense. Um, and, uh, but you said something that I think, is really unique that a lot of Christians haven't thought about. And and I'll put it this way, right? When I first started college uh, at a Christian confessional institution, um, I remember walking in, I remember before going to college, yeah, I heard about relativism. Yeah, I heard about some of these things, but you know, they, these were kind of things on the fringes. Hmm. Um, but going to college, it felt like there was only two topics that I really remember were constantly debated. Right. Mm. And it was Calvinism and Arminianism or or human freedom and mm. and predeterminism mm -hmm. on one hand. And then the other hand was like modernism and postmodernism and really how postmodernism was relativism and really how relativism is of the devil. And mm. so like those were the the two major topics. Yeah. And how modernism, how moving away from modernism towards postmodernism was ultimately going to be a quote unquote destruction. 
mm-hmm. of the Christian faith because we've we've taken away objective truth, we've taken away objectivity, um, and how can we really be Christians without those things? Mm-hmm. But in your story, and I don't think your story, uh, I mean, everyone's story is unique, but you know what I'm saying. It's not mm-hmm. particular in the sense of like I think yeah. I've I've hear that same kind of sentiment. I study this the way that I was supposed to often through modernistic uh, endeavors, right? Historical critical theories, right? And all of a sudden I realize the things that I've been taught don't match what I'm learning and what I'm Mm. actually studying. What is empirical, at least the best way I can determine empirical. And this causes a cognitive dissonance because I'm told modernism is the right way. And yet when I use modernism, Mm. I'm having some kind of cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. between what I'm, what I'm, what I've learned in church, what I grew up with as a faith and what I'm learning actually in my study. So a long way to say, I want to hear more about that, but, but along the way, telling me about that, if you wouldn't mind for the audience, for those who are kind of like, yeah, I've heard the word modernism, but I don't really know. Maybe kind of explain that process for you while also explaining modernism. Is that too big of a... No, it's uh, perfect because that's exactly the way that I came into this, actually. It was um, <clears throat> it was because of my particular biographical trajectory and the sort of intellectual movements that I was making through these particular ways of seeing the world uh, that when I discovered this whole, you know, traditional modern postmodern metamodern uh discussion it was amazing because it, it seemed to describe so well my own individual uh sort of faith journey or or trajectory um and there's a reason for that which we can get into uh that relates to you know how individuals and, and the collective kind of work together uh in 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 developing you know sort of shared perspectives but um so yeah i think it's entirely on point and um I guess to the to the issue of modernism and caveat caveat up front here is that you know whenever we're speaking of these sorts of terms they're so big that you know we have to speak in just heuristics right uh, if we really wanted to zoom in and get fine grained there's all sorts of stuff we could tease out and uh, and kind of problematize and 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 make more uh, you know interesting or or, or right. problematic but so I'll be speaking in broad terms here I just want to you know uh, hold, uh, put that out there but so that all being said. Uh, modernism and modernity um, basically represent a a shift in in perspective um, away from uh, older traditional modes of of thinking, which are tend to be situated in religious frameworks. um, And in in the modern context, there's the insight about applying sort of rational mechanistic uh, thought to um to the world which then includes religious stories and uh and and traditions and so you know historically speaking um you know you can kind of locate this shift you know essentially with with the the transition that occurs from the renaissance into the enlightenment um you know sometime around the 17th century this this sort of culture-wide transition in europe happens where you 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 really do move from a worldview that's deeply grounded in uh christian religion and its stories and its uh worldview and over the course of a couple centuries you start just seeing this rapid development of a different worldview um, that's informed by the new advances in the scientific revolution, which then leads to the industrial revolution. And this is a kind of new worldview, a modern worldview that is sort of self-consciously aware of its difference from how it's not a pre-modern or a traditional worldview. Right. 
and uh, and and the core kind of emphasis there, especially as it comes out of the Enlightenment, is the emphasis on reason as a liberatory uh, force uh, that we can sort of free ourselves from superstition and from old dogmas and traditions uh, that are sort of holding back human progress. Um, and, and it's a sort of dedication to the belief that, you know, uh, if we empirically study reality and we basically engage the scientific method to ask, uh, the universe, the big questions, we can, uh, kind of get a new sense of reality, uh, that's not just based on authority, but it's based on, uh, evidence and reason and rationality. And over time, this leads to, yeah, a new worldview, which is, uh, especially in the early phases, highly mechanistic, sort of a Newtonian clockwork universe, um, where, you know, uh, you're kind of dealing with something like uh, what's called uh, reductionistic determinism, sort of like there are these really small things called atoms, and they're all bumping into each other. And that's what causes everything, right? And right, uh, we right. can ultimately explain everything through that. And so modernity is is really uh, driven by this perspective that um, we've discovered, uh, you know, all this new information about the world, which was very true. Um, the invention of the both the microscope and the telescope basically totally changed the amount of information that we could uh, analyze about reality. And that goes back mm. to Galileo and to Hooke, you know, discovering the cell and whatnot. So just the whole scope of the universe shifts and in the process uh, kind of disrupts a lot of the um, traditional uh beliefs about how the world worked um and uh you know everything from the copernican revolution and the debates with galileo etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's a long story there but i think people probably listening have a sense of that and the worldview that comes out of that the modern worldview um you know really sort of uh persists uh and gains steam gains increasing traction uh from the 17th 18th 19th centuries i think really culminates in europe in 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 the 19th century um, by then, you know, you'd seen just rapid industrialization uh, and the development yeah. really of, a, of an extensive capitalistic system. I could go on and on. So it's hard for me to get, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to stay as sort of, uh, you know, definitional as possible. But I think all of these things are really important for people to get a, a sense of like what we mean by the modern world and yeah. why. Um, well, well, so maybe know. attach it somewhat to, you know, that objectivity, because I think that's really the sure the the forefront of the church's mind or, or of the Christian mind, when we talk about modernism, it's usually mm -hmm. the, there is this capital T truth that can yeah. be objectively understood or, yeah. or obtained in some fashion. Right. And so maybe kind of, cause you, sure. you get there, right. A little bit with that reductionism, yeah. but yeah. So, so that, yeah, that is really key. And, um, and, so maybe a simple way of getting at that is just that um, uh, so earlier on uh, in the in the pre-modern, you know, kind of cosmos, there was the notion of the great chain of being. Um, people are familiar with that. And it was just sort of the sense that God exists. And so God is the arbiter of reality, of truth, of value. And there is this kind of great scale and ultimately God's at the top. Um, and that's just sort of the way it is. And then with the development of modern thought, you start getting... Um, again, a move away from sort of authority and that kind of description of reality and more towards uh, empirical validation. So then it's about, well, what can we study, observe, and come to kind of general consensus and agreement about based on what you could call intersubjective verification? You know, I look outside and it's raining and you look outside and it's raining. And so that is shared evidentiary support for the objective truth that it is raining. 
Um, yeah. and, and, and so that, that is then this notion, which is, and this is actually a really interesting, uh, an important point actually, is that this is both a departure from the pre-modern perspective, but it's also, uh, something that I think it takes from the pre-modern that will get disrupted in the post-modern perspective, which is to say that there is a truth. There is a capital T truth still, right? right. It's just, it's just different how we understand and determine it. Whereas before capital T truth was basically adjudicated by going to scripture and going to, you know, revealed, uh, authoritative word, um, and, and the institutional authorities that sort of back it up. And in the modern world, it's, um, no, it's evidence. It's, it's, it's go and find yourself, think for yourself, uh, you know, uh, uh, was it Kant, you know, said, uh, sapire auda, dare to know, dare to, dare to become informed, yeah. basically. So then there's the shared sense that there is an objective reality, um, but it becomes differently, um, you know, kind of configured in terms of how that is determined, but it still is the case that it, that there is a, a reality and, and we can all agree on it. And that is what largely gets disrupted by the relativism of postmodernism, which I could get into if you want. Yeah. Well, I think before we get there, right, like kind of part of your story, uh, and, and let's kind of, in some sense, part of both of our stories, as we mm -hmm. talked about them even before the podcast, um, that system, right? That system of the kind of objectivity of the just get the right data and it's going to point towards this thing that we've maybe preconceived or pre-believed and we can get the data that kind of points to that ultimately didn't work, right? Mm -hmm. Like it ultimately, at least within our our stories uh, and, and many others, and we talked about, you know, that, that word again, deconstruction and those who have kind of gone through those paths often... Mm -hmm they deconstruct through modernity uh, mm. more than post-modernity, which is, yeah. I know for some people like, what? Like, how is that? Because modernity has given them the tools to use in deconstructing that worldview that they once had, right? Mm -hmm. so, so how did that happen for you? And maybe explain again along sure. the way, Yeah, here is exactly how it was modernity, not post-modernity that caused yeah. that. Yeah, that yeah, through. yeah. Yeah. Uh it was sort of a double whammy. Uh, so for me, it was, as I said, I, I got into the historical critical study of the Bible. Um, and uh, in devotional contexts, there are different ways of, there are different traditions that assert different, let's just say they make, they make different claims. Um, I think even in sort of uh, child uh, NIV study Bibles, uh, or maybe adult ones too, I don't know, where, where there's little descriptions of, you know, who wrote this text and who wrote this text, that right. sort of a thing. Um, in my study Bible, when I was a kid, uh, the first five books said, uh, who, you know, who wrote this and said Moses. Um, so I was like, okay, well, that fe I feel good about that. You know, Moses wrote <laughs> these books. So right. we can take that one to the bank, right? Um, but then getting into college and studying things like, say, the documentary hypothesis, which is using um, tools of source criticism, well, essentially rationality, rational argumentation, right. uh, critical scrutiny, really looking close at the text, um, treating the text like other historical texts and not giving it a special uh, kind of special uh, dispensation, pardon the yeah. pun, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and basically applying those tools um, and, and basically uncovering that, oh no, there are multiple source strands here. Um, and, 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 and that they, these were probably written over the course of hundreds of years and compiled by a redactor, et cetera. Um, and so when I started studying that and, and getting into the evidence at that point, I was, I was, I was convinced, right? Meaning at an intellectual, rational level, 
uh, I could not believe what I used to believe. And the only sort of argumentation that I felt could come from those still espousing what I used to believe was uh, an appeal to authority, which is, you know, oh, well, this is what we believe, or this is what the church says, or this is what your Bible says. So it's got to be right. true. But when I was reading these books, I could see the argumentation and it was very clear to me. And so there was sort of a, I'd used critical thought and rationality and evidentiary support, et cetera, kind of, the, you know, the, the sorts of tools that scientists use um, and, and historians um, to be compelled of a, of a new way of looking at uh, at this text. And because this text was the basis of my worldview, I then was compelled to shift my worldview. Um, so that was sort of a more modern approach, which um, I felt like I felt very comfortable uh, saying this is objectively true, that this is how this book came to be, or at least these books came to be written, let's say, right? So uh, whereas before the traditional perspective was there's an objective or there's a shared, you know, deep capital T objective truth, and it is the sacred revealed truth that we're espousing. In this context, it was, yes, there is a capital T objective truth, um, but we can actually show what it is and it's different from what right. the devotional context is. So that's sort of the modernist deconstruction that I went through. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you ever if you ever experienced this, right? And in, in my own kind of studies and and then asking these questions, right? And thinking about JDP or these yeah. kind of yeah. these sources of of Torah and 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 the difference, a lot of the different things, right? Especially kind of the perspectives on scripture that say that it it has zero contradictions, um, mm -hmm. those kind of things. And then all of a sudden you use kind of a modernistic yeah. or scientific approach and study and you hit a wall, right? Because you come to JEDP and even JEDP, right? Today, in some ways, I'm kind of defeating my own argument by saying this, right? JEDP is now kind of losing a bit of favor for another mm -hmm. another thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not not Moses, not going back to Moses yeah. wrote it, right? But maybe there's something else that better explains this. Often I would hear someone, you know, bringing up a question, Hey, this doesn't seem to work with this. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to work with this in our historical critical studies. And, and here's why, or here's, here's the issue. Oftentimes both, like you said, the appeal was back to authority. Well, this is just what the church has believed, or this is mm -hmm. just what, you know, the pastor says, or the professor said, or whatever it was. But then there was this other kind of argument that just kind of almost was fideistic in its own sense that just said, mm -hmm. well, you just don't know enough, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you really knew everything, then it is going to point you back to this, to the original idea, yeah, right? Yeah. Like you're only halfway there. You've got some of the information. Once you get all of it, it's yeah. going to just point you right back to the very thing that we said to start. Right. And that to me always was very dissatisfactory because yeah. it it always just kind of said, no, 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 we all we already had it right. Why are you doing all this? Mm -hmm. Because eventually you'll just get enough information and you'll be able to puzzle it all together as if it were, which is kind of a modernistic kind of perspective, right? There's a great yeah. puzzle out there. If you just right. put all the pieces together in the right order, you will get the picture that we already see on the box, which is yeah. our, already our belief. No, right? and that's, and yeah, and that's very much, um, I, I hung out in that space for a long time as well, uh, specifically uh, in the kind of Christian apologetics world and and you mm. know, books like Josh McDowell's, um, you know, the new evidence that demands a verdict and that sort of a thing, um, which is using modernist or it is purporting to be using kind of modernist style, rational thinking, evidentiary support, et cetera, to essentially 
prop up the old, you know, devotional traditional claims. Um, so right. it's still kind of attempting to use those tools and be in conversation with these ideas, but then just saying, but they're wrong. Right. Um, and if anyone like I, it, th that book's gone through a number of editions now, my, my older one, um, you know, they basically just flat out say this documentary source hypothesis is, is false and here's why. And they give a couple of reasons, but like um, it, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's sort of playing a modernist game, but and this could be a, I guess, a topic for discussion. But I don't think that it 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 can play it better than the modernists. You know what I mean? It's it's, <laughs> right. it's basically sort right. of a it's a bridge thing that can kind of I think serve for people beginning to think in those terms and then sort of comfort them by saying, no, look, you can be rational in your thought and you can look for evidence that's great. When you do so, just read this book and that way you'll fall back into the fold and there won't be any problems for your faith. Yeah. And so it can serve a kind of, um, yeah, a, a kind of assuaging, comforting effect. But I, for me, it didn't ultimately work because again, like when you go deep into the material, you find that the arguments that are being supported just, you know, stack up here versus stack up here and it's a different thing. So yeah. um, that was my experience anyway. Uh, no. But, but I, I, there's an interesting sort of gateway, you know, of like, once you're on the apologetics track, you're either going to maybe fall back into the fold quietly and be like, okay, well I did my due diligence, or you're going to be like, no, 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 I've, I've seen yeah. something here and I need to keep going and uh, it's probably not going to be enough. So, yeah. One, one of these days I'm going to do a, a podcast on you know whether it's the uh the claims that apologetics is dead which mm. in some ways i i think there is a, modernistic apologetics maybe mm -hmm. is you know so flawed at this point and within the culture that it it really doesn't work uh but maybe we'll get there at some point mm. uh and and you know i'm Bonhoeffer, right? Bonhoeffer is the one who kind of made that claim forever mm. ago that apologetics was dead. But of course, he means it in a different way than I'm using it now. So I don't mm. want to be dishonest in saying that. But um, yeah, I like your analogy, right? Um, in the sense of saying they're playing, like if we use that analogy of a game, they're playing a game using modernistic rules mm -hmm. for pre-modernistic thought, Right. And ultimately, yeah, that's yeah. only going to get you so far right. compared to the people who are using modernistic thought, using modernistic rationality, playing yeah. the modernistic game. It's their game, yeah. and we're trying to play it with their rules, and ultimately, it's uh, you know, a round peg in a square hole type mm. of thing. It can only, you know, we might be able to force it in some little bit, but it's never going to go through. Mm. So let's kind of make the turn, right? And, and, and. Often it can be called the postmodern turn, mm. right? There's a lot of kind of ways, different ways that the postmodern turn has has affected the Christian church, reader response readings of scripture, kind of moving away from historical critical readings and more mm -hmm. towards the subjective mm -hmm. readings, which I would argue in some sense that the church has actually been doing reader response for longer than it claims to have mm -hmm. done with <laughs> devotional readings and what does mm -hmm. it mean for you and how do you apply mm -hmm. it to your life and those kind of questions sure. but maybe start with just kind of like giving an overview of okay if that was modernism here's postmodernism and yeah. its effect right yeah so uh i think starting again with the issue of objective truth is a good place um so you know i'd be making the claim that uh, as i did in in modernity there's still capital t objective truth 
uh, it's a different truth than what it was in in the pre-modern worldview. Uh, but now it's it's sort of you know it feels sure of itself because of how uh, you know what it's based on and all this you yeah. know appeal to rationality and, and evidence. Um, with the postmodern turn, you get a a a questioning at 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 least if not an outright attack on that idea uh itself which is that the notion that there is a a a given single capital t objective truth is called into question um and the way that that is done essentially is to say well whose truth and who's asking the questions and what questions are being asked and why um, so to give you an example, which I think is, is maybe helpful for this, right. Um, I was just having a, a conversation with someone and they were talking about how, uh, you know, we have all these studies from psychology, uh, professors and psychology, um, scholars who will basically use as their sample, uh, size, their, their undergraduate classes, right. Um, so they'll do various kinds of, you know, psychology research and questionnaires and and uh, psychometric studies these sorts of things and uh their their data is coming from their students um so they get all this data and then they'll say oh this is really interesting we're we're revealing information about the mind this is how the mind works this is how what it you know the human cognition etc cetera, etc cetera. um and that would be sort of like a a modernist approach of like hey we've done the experiment we're using our rational methodological tools here and we're getting some objective answers about reality well, then the yeah. postmodernists come along and they say, wait a second, who's your, who are your, your sample size? Like what, what, what is your data set? It's your undergraduate class. And, and are they an actual representative sample of humanity or are right. they, you know, maybe a specific demographic of, you know, specifically privileged folks? Uh, what, you know, what, what race are they? What socioeconomic background do they come from, et cetera? And basically show by the modernist's own pretenses to objectivity that it doesn't live up to the claim that that there's other contexts that need to be taken into account yeah. and that 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 what this modernist scholar thought they were proclaiming about quote unquote the mind as like the objective truth is actually just a, a, a small sample of what they thought they were talking about um and that sort of gives you a sense of like these postmodern shifts um now i want to say postmodernism is again even more so than modernism um, a very diffuse and diverse sort of thing, right? So there's everything from what I would consider very valid and interesting critiques of modernism that fall under the banner of postmodernism. And then there's also just nonsense and obscurantist, you know, frivolous garbage. Right. <laughs> so um, I, I want to make that distinction uh, as well, because, um, uh, well, it just needs to be made. But uh, I'm going to be focusing in this sort of taxonomy here on what I think are the genuine insights that like a postmodern vantage brings to the modern vantage. Right. And it, it's largely this, it's context. Um, it's, uh, you know, who's asking the question, what are the, what, what was missing from the picture basically of, of the modernists, uh, uh, in their, in their quest, in their bid for objectivity. Um, it's the sort of thing that you get when you get to quantum physics, right. In the 20th century and, uh, people are trying to make measurements of subatomic phenomena, but they find that actually there's this thing called the observer effect, right. Where like you're influencing right. the yep. very thing that you would study. And so at, 
there, there's this kind of claim, I think, which which is valid, which is that once you pursue a sort of modernist scientific agenda long enough, you're going to eventually bump up against the inherent limits of that approach. And in order to kind of go beyond it, to, to move into a postmodern perspective, you've got to be essentially bringing in more information to actually salvage uh, and 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 improve uh, the very effort that you were trying to achieve yeah. in the first place, which is say things about accurate things about reality. So that's that's one element to this. Um, but there are many others. There's the political element. Um, you know, you get like a, a thinker like Foucault, for example, who then says, oh, OK, well, look, we've got these pre-modern ways that people were thinking. We had these modern ways of thinking. Well, what are these? These are systems of knowing. Right. These are what he called mm. epistemes. Right. And right. and 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 he was basically trying to make the point that, the, you know, the modernists aren't better or worse than the pre-moderns. Uh, they just have a different way of seeing it because there was a different uh, kind of structural system that was informing the the kinds of knowledge that they were generating. Yeah. Um, and this is like hardcore relativism. Then at this point, people like Thomas Kuhn uh, have a very variation on this sort of view. And um, it's basically that it's that it's that knowledge is relative. And so there isn't a, you know, view from nowhere. Uh, the scientist needs to be taken into account if we're going to talk about the science. Right. Um, and that this so-called objectivity is ignoring what we actually kind of take for granted as being the most real, which is our subjective experience of reality. So um, so it kind of flips everything on its head uh, in this sort of interesting you know, kind of dialectical fashion. So anyway, that's kind of a brief introduction to that postmodern shift. Yeah, and I think um, I, as a part of that, right, because just trying to, trying to draw it back to its effect on the mm -hmm. church or mm -hmm. its effect on the Christian kind of mind or the Christian worldview, you know, that's that was primarily the sticking point, right? Mm -hmm. It was this idea that post-modernity and some of its more extreme forms, uh, not in its extreme forms. I mean, some of it being that kind of the ultra relativistic, you know, absolutely can't, it, nothing can be said about anything type of form. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but even it's in the sense that because it kind of claims there is no objective truth, uh, Christians, and maybe rightfully so, looked very suspiciously at post-modernity to kind of go, well, if there is no objective truth, then the worldview of kind of the Christian world that is based on a pre-modern view can no longer exist. Mm. Because if there is no objective truth, meaning there is no, uh, you know, using like an, a Thomas Aquinas argument, right? If there is no kind of moved, uh, unmoved mover, right? Kind of that initial thing, uh, known for Christians as God, mm -hmm. then then none of this really matters anyways, right? And it's kind of where that that postmodernity kind of turns to nihilism, right? Like none of this really matters. We have no objective truth. But and where that is a, a a valid concern, and I think it is a valid concern, Christians tended to use, at least in my opinion, kind of my anecdotal stories, post-modernity where it fit and where it made sense to kind of further its own goals, right? Think about, I think about biblical translation, right? Someone mm -hmm. who's done biblical studies, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I think about the passage, the the kind of passage about uh, being made white as snow, 
right? And and even as a kid, I remember hearing like, oh, you know, th there are people groups who have never seen snow. So this concept doesn't fit in their mind. So actually kind of some of these Bible translators might change to say white as the whitest sheep, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or, or kind of using a different language to get mm -hmm. to an idea. And, I, you know, kind of after growing up, I'm like, but that is a postmodern argument, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's using postmodernity to try to use context to help mm -hmm. describe something uh, that otherwise without the context wouldn't make any sense, right? It mm -hmm. kind of is devoid of meaning. So there is this kind of like, and maybe this is our transition to metamodernity, right? That kind of like, here's where this, this other thing comes from is that Christians kind of push back hard for some good reasons, maybe for some not valid reasons on kind of the postmodern turn, the postmodern mm -hmm. worldview. But, but again, that modern never really worked well either. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, it was back to your analogy, playing a modernistic game with modernistic rules with a pre-modern yeah. belief system. Mm -hmm. And, and ultimately it was going to not work, yeah. uh, at least work out the way that they thought it might within a modernistic framework. So then we'll just start kind of with the background before we get into how is this potential? What is this, what does this mean for spirituality? What does this mm -hmm. mean for religion? Uh, where did metamodernity kind of come up from and what were its main central claims about the way in which humans engage with the world, particularly around the mm -hmm. notion of truth? Yeah. So uh, the metamodern conversation gets started in uh, cultural studies uh, around 2010. There were some precursors um, and yeah, I'll also just, plug for my book if anyone's interested in this topic i i go through this in in the book that's uh that just came out called metamodernism or the cultural logic of cultural logic so oh, uh, but plug it, away tell people where uh, to buy it yeah. uh it, it's uh well if you go to amazon and look up metamodernism you'll find it there um uh maybe i can give you the link or something if people are interested you could put it in the description yeah. or something like that um but uh yeah, so it emerges in cultural studies conversations because there'd been this sentiment uh, for some time that postmodernism was sort of uh, dead, <laughs> um, that that it had peaked in the 90s and that something new was around um, because, for one, people were seeing a bunch of art out there that just didn't fit with postmodern kind of uh, approaches. So like, oh, this is this is weird. This is interesting. And it doesn't really we don't really have a rubric for making sense of this. Um and uh, and that actually might be a, maybe I don't know maybe a surprise to some of your listeners because uh, there is still a lot of conversation out there about postmodernism and in many ways it it might seem like the world is now more postmodern than ever um, but this was really postmodernism uh, in academic conversations and in people talking about the arts and and what was sort of quintessentially postmodern in the arts so that's Which really. Yeah, maybe just to kind of like give an example of that, right? Yeah, I mean, you know the name of it. I don't, right? The kind of one of the first postmodern art pieces is a urinal that's put yeah. on its back on the ground, right? Yeah. As a kind yeah, of yeah. So that was a, a work by Duchamp, um, and uh, and that was that's a great example of what you could call kind of a deconstruction of art. Uh, so um, Marcel Duchamp, uh, there's a, uh, a an art competition and he submits a urinal with the name R Mutt on it. And wasn't uh, it like one dollar or something you had to like pay to get in? Some I can't remember. 
Yeah. So it was, it, but what, one of the things it was meant to gesture towards was, um, what, what is art, right? What, what makes something art, um, is art, what is in, in a gallery, in which case, if you put a urinal in a gallery, does that make it art? Um, and, uh, you know, these were the kinds of questions that this that was coming out of these kinds of uh, deconstructions of art. And you can see that the context there, right, which is sort of like um, it's all about context. It's like if we change the context of something, what is what does that do for the thing? The thing doesn't have just this absolute intrinsic reality to it. It's influenced by mm. how we engage with it. Um, and, you know, postmodernism was also very influenced by like the thinking of uh, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Who is applying a lot of these ideas to language as well um or you yeah. know like uh i'm holding up a cup right now right and we can call it a cup but if i sit on the cup does it become a chair uh if i put it on my head does it become a hat right so like what do what right. are these things that when we talk about objective truth what are we even talking about so postmodern art uh did uh, really kind of explore some of these things um and uh and it was sort of aimed at exploding the notions of art itself. Um, so you get pop art, you know, in the, in the, uh, fifties and sixties, uh, like, you know, Liechtenstein and, and sort of like, again, what is art Andy Warhol, you know, making, uh, his stuff, making a, a soup can, a Campbell's soup can, you know, depicting that, is that advertising or is it art? Right. And that, all these right. kinds of questions. So that sort of begins what is often thought about as postmodern art, and that really uh, goes on a crescendo until, you know, the, the end of the 20th century. And there's a kind of cynicism to it. There's a kind of like um, irreverence to it, right? Uh, it's not the art of the high modernists of, you know, the heroic, uh, you know, man uh, uh, triumphing against nature or something. It's, I... um, it's this sort of uh, cheeky, irreverent, you know, putting a urinal in the art gallery and making everyone, you know, deal with that. Um, has kind of a punk quality to it. So you get this, uh, this sort of post-war um, surge of these kinds of artistic developments where these kinds of postmodern questions that we were talking about in terms of like what is true and, and who says and who's to say and what good, you know, do these things do for different people, you know, for whose benefit, all these kinds of cynical, skeptical questions show up in the arts. Um, and I think people, you know, maybe uh, Gen, uh, Gen X is very kind of emblematic of this, of the, the music that comes out of that generation and the, the kind of television and, and whatnot. Uh, and there's a, yeah, it's basically just a kind of irreverent cynicism, skepticism, et cetera. Um, and that kind of peaks in the 90s. And then you start seeing different things um, like Wes Anderson, <laughs> you know, uh, which is uh, who's often right. considered a kind of quintessential meta modern artist because you watch his movies and there's like just innocent kids having fun, you know, dancing and uh, and these like silly, you know, like the, the fantastic Mr. Fox, a kind of like just um, earnestness and a kind of sincerity there that is at the same time, you know, not not uh not unaware of what it's doing so you started seeing some new stuff in the in the late 90s and early 2000s david foster wallace and a lot of people were kind of like yeah this postmodern moment's over irony's you know corrosive we got to move beyond it and so in 2010 these dutch cultural theorists uh give it a, a name to this they call it metamodernism and that sort of sets in motion this uh, rich academic discourse around the arts of like looking at, you know, these these metamodern developments in culture. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah. that's that's set up. 
Yeah. And, and, and those theorists, uh, I can only remember one name off the top of my head because I'm so bad at names, uh, acres, right. Being the one, and I can't remember, uh-huh. you know, the other one. Yeah. It's a uh, Tim from Moylan and, and Robin von Doniker. Yeah. So great. They, they write, they write this meta meta modern manifesto, right. Which is, which is really where I kind of well, they 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 write a work that then leads directly to someone right. writing the Meta Modern Manifesto. I think that was written by a guy named Luke Turner who knew them yes. and, and, right. and was related. Yeah. But uh, but they well yeah sorry go on uh, yeah yeah, yeah. The, well yeah. just it kind of is a helpful kind of yeah. I, I think if people just Google Meta Modern Manifesto they'll mm-hmm. find it's I think it's Meta Modern Manifesto dot org maybe off the top of my head. That, yeah. uh, but but it kind of lists out maybe the main tenets right or the main kind of aims of metamodernism and i think maybe to help people kind of mm-hmm. maybe give us some of what is like if we had this modernism of objective truth we had this postmodernism mm-hmm. of no objective truth yeah what makes metamodernism different particularly yeah. in relation to truth so you know getting there via the arts we could say one of the a couple of chief terms are used in metamodern discussions about art and they're uh, things like sincere irony uh, and uh, uh, pragmatic idealism uh, and informed naivete. These were all terms that were coined by those scholars. Um, and it basically is trying to describe the sensibility uh, where you've got what seems like a mix of modern, quintessentially modern and quintessentially postmodern things kind of happening at the same time yeah. or kind of back and forth. Um, and so that I think is sort of the best way into thinking about metamodernism. One of the meanings of the prefix meta is between. And so what these guys were getting at was that metamodern art seems to be this moving between modern and postmodern in a way that kind of creates something new. Um, and that was the genesis of the idea, uh, which has since blossomed into a whole, you know, very rich discussion discourse. And, uh, that's a lot of what that book is about that I was mentioning that I've written, um, as far as it relates to truth, I think this is actually really crucial and, uh, and the most promising, uh, kind of philosophical, I think stuff that comes out of this, which is, um, this is how I'll put it. And I can suggest other thinkers who are kind of in this space and dealing with these issues in this way. Um, I'll frame this as part of, uh, well, just, yeah. So, so, you know, we were talking about objective truth and then we were talking about how the postmodernists come along and basically say, well, you know, who's to say, and, you know, all, all we've really got is this sort of like subjective, uh, you know, basis for establishing relative truths or, you know, there's no grand narrative. There's only micro narratives right. and who's to compare between them essentially. Um, and that's the relativism, right? So meta, I think a, a quintessentially meta modern take is a synthesis or a, a mixing of these two insights, which are, I would say, very valid in their own terms. They're just incomplete and they need to be balanced off of each other. So, um, for example, I think that the postmodernists were were right that there isn't like an absolute uh, reality to this cup that I'm holding, right? There, this is not a platonic cup. <laughs> it is, right. if I put it on right. my head, it is a hat. If I sit on it, it is a chair, right? It is context uh, dependent. Now we can get into why was it made and all this stuff, but ultimately there is no kind of deep transcendent essence to this thing, the way that certainly pre-modern philosophers used to think about, you know, capital T truth. And in terms of like the way modern thinkers used to think of objective truth, it would be like, well, if this thing has 
um, you know, like there is no essence. I can't, I can't, uh, look at the essence under a microscope. I can't measure right. the essence therefore. Right. So, um, the contextual thing though, is not the whole story. Uh, and I think the insight, uh, that the metamodernists get at is what use is the thing in context? Um, so for example, you just used an example earlier of talking about a translation of a text into right. a, a different set of words that actually will be meaningful for someone versus if you leave it in sort of the the original, it just won't make any sense. Um, you know, it, so you change it to sheep instead of snow. Now, I think if you actually probe that, that's not relativism, that there's right. something behind that decision to do that. Yeah. And that's because one thing will be meaningful to a person in a particular context and the other thing won't. Now, this is what becomes, I think, the, the basis of a metamodern approach to truth, which is that meaning is contextually bound, but that doesn't mean it's radically relative and subjective. Uh, it means that there is a relationship between specific meanings and their specific contexts that give them a form of objective reality. Now, what I right. mean by that is um, there's a thinker named John Verveke, uh, who uh, has done excellent work in the metamodern discussion space, specifically around issues of meaning. And he coined this term called the transjective. Uh, so this is sort of a mixture between the objective and the subjective. The transjective is what goes on between, you know, an entity and its context. Um, and, the, and the point is, that's not relative, right? Um, if I were not sitting at this distance from this microphone, I couldn't be accomplishing the specific task of having this conversation with you, right? So there are actual like real objective limits on trying to do this thing that we're doing right now. Yeah. And I need to do a certain thing in this context, a certain way in order for this to be a meaningful exchange in a particular way. Uh, if I were outside, that's a fail, <laughs> you know? Right, so there right. is like reality, but it's uh, there's reality to these sorts of meanings that go on. They're just not transcendently essentially located in, you know, what's happening. They are transjectively uh, adjudicated between, you know, what's going on in our context. Or another example would be, um, you know, uh, let's say, well, so a lot of my work uh, is about trying to really ground this in, in a, in, in a really deep way, uh, and I won't get into all the details, but let's say um, there are meanings to, to information that actually have an influence on whether or not you survive or not, right? If, um, hmm. if, I, if I don't think that, uh, let's say there's a, a thunderstorm or lightning storm going on, and I walk outside with a bunch of metal over my head, that's going to have a you know, a very objective impact on my continued existence, right? Right, right? So I need to navigate my environment in a way that takes account for those realities. And so basically what you get from this approach, right, is that is that there is a, 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 a real relationship between, uh, between the meanings that people make about reality and their context. And that's not subjective, right? It's not subjective when I get struck by lightning. Um, it, it, that's the consequence of a real relationship of me either relating or not relating accurately yeah. and meaningfully with my environment. So these are these are ways, metamodern approaches to the issue of truth that take on the insights of the postmodernists and sort of relativizing meaning, emphasizing the context of things, um, but also not 
you know, foregoing or just abandoning the notion that there is actually some reality that that we're working right. with here. Um, so you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. I think you're building off of the insights of both the modern and the postmodern in a in a meta modern way. And so yeah. there's a lot to unpack there. But that I, I, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the beginning of something. And maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna boil it down. And again, boiling it down, of course, comes with all the caveats that by doing so, I'm missing a lot of the nuance, right? But I think often when I've engaged with meta modernity, I often boil it down in kind of the big picture of truth mm. is that meta modernity does does hold to a an objective, whether it's reality or truth, but it doesn't hold to the idea that one can grab that objective, that that capital T truth objectively once mm. and for all as one thing. Mm. Right. As in like we can own it, we can contain it, we can that we tried to do within modernity through that reductive reductionism, right? That mm -hmm. we can say, well, we can just kind of figure out all the material yeah. elements right? and we have it. For me, at least when it comes to meta modernity and in, in its relation to, to religion, spirituality, even Christianity, it helps with the notion of saying, we can say there is a truth and we can talk about real, like you're saying, real relationality between us, community, spirituality, God, we can talk about those things and we can talk about truthfulness of those things, but we are always limited to, to uh, we will constantly be limited to not knowing the full objectivity yeah. of a truth yeah. uh, because we can't. And I yeah. think most Christians are comfortable they they use they use language like you know you can't put god in a box right like they talk about it that way yeah they'll talk about the the grand meta narrative of of god's truthfulness but then on the flip side you know are afraid mm -hmm. of talking about it in context or at least kind of because you know slippery slope fallacies right mm -hmm. once you start down there you were just sliding down to relativism which yeah called a fallacy for a reason right um, but I, I don't know, I don't know, maybe yeah. you can correct me, but that's no, kind of the way yeah. that I've often framed it in terms of spirituality to help students kind of recognize, like, here's how it is trying to grab the hand of both things, recognize mm -hmm. the good of both, uh, and shedding away some of the problematic yeah. portions of these. <clears throat> and, and for me, actually, I find it to be incredibly spiritually opening to embrace this perspective, uh, at, at, a, at a number of levels. So, here's an example, right? Um, you know, naively, we might assume, you know, oh, there's a there's a blue uh, house outside. And then you start doing some of that modern thinking. And, you know, you can, you can say, well, what do we mean by blue? And how do I know that it's blue? Well, okay, then you can define blue as being a particular wavelength. And now you've measured it. And therefore, it's objectively true and this sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, postmodernists come along and say, uh, you know, basically, deconstructing that um well we can still just because we have this measure doesn't mean that we know what blue is and actually blue is a, the product of your subjective relationship to a reality mediated through you your specific kind of sensory organisms or uh right. you know sense organs so for example a mantis shrimp i learned about this from one of those old uh radio Radio Lab. Radio Lab? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great yeah. podcast. It was wonderful. Way. It was great about the mantis yeah. shrimp because the mantis shrimp sees all these colors that human beings don't see. So 
and obviously many other animals have other kinds of ways of relating to reality. Bats use sonar and et cetera. Right. So like the question there would be what's real, you know, like I'm not, I'm missing elements of reality. Uh, and so when I'm looking at a blue house, a mantis shrimp is seeing a whole technicolor house going on there. Right. Right. Now yeah. what's interesting though, is that my specific sense organs are still valid, so to speak, uh, in, helping me navigate reality. Um, and so it's not to say that just because, you know, these different senses can pick up different phenomena that there is no reality. It means that there's a lot of information out there that different organisms are filtering in different ways through their particular sensory inputs. And that to me is very profound because it means that beyond my senses, and I guess maybe we're getting a little Kantian here or something, but beyond my senses, there's this incredibly rich world of information that I may or may not be picking up on. Yeah. And right. that to me is this mystery that we live in, right? And we do our best to, you know, navigate the world and reality as successfully as we can. But let's not kid ourselves, you know, it's a very filtered picture of the world. And it's real, yes, but it's also very idiosyncratically real. And and rather than that being the cause of like some despair of like, oh, no, we don't know reality. To me, it's part of this invitation to appreciate this profound, uh, profund well, this profound profundity, this profound yeah. sort of abyss of meaning, of potential meanings that lie beyond our ken that sometimes we're able to tap into, sometimes, you know, et cetera. So yeah. um, that to me frames this very much in terms of this mystery that we're relating to. And, and for me, it's a very uh, spiritual activity to think about the ways in which we might be called to transcend our limitations, to be able to see more of that reality, to be able to, to be able to take in more, to make more of that intelligible. That to me is the process. It's a very spiritual process of, of learning more about creation and, and existence. And, you know, to the degree one might have certain pantheistic or panentheistic sympathies, learning more about God, uh, learning more about at least you could say ultimate reality, right? Yeah. Not in an absolute, absolute sense, but in a, a relatively uh, greater sense. Uh, yeah. And I think that metamodernism gestures toward uh, that kind of approach to reality. Yeah, I think I think there's two things that I find interesting with this. One is it pushes back very deeply against the, the nihilism and the, uh, the just give up perspective that could come from some of the extremes in postmodernism, mm -hmm. right? Well, we can't, so just don't, right? Yeah. Or there is not, so so just don't, yeah. right? And I like that that Luke Turner kind of talked about the oscillation, right? This kind of oscillation between these, these ideas to be able to hold into your head at one moment, the idea that there is objectivity and also the idea that we can't come to objectivity objectively <laughs> to actually be able to to not take that as a as a negative but actually as a positive of the exploration of the mystery that's kind mm -hmm. of driving us towards right mm -hmm. and and that's i think even in his manifesto talking about the kind of the oscillation that moves us forward mm. uh of course not his the manifesto not in a religious sense but i'm kind of contextualizing sure. it now for what yeah. it means uh does I think more for a theological uh, worldview in life than the I have it or there is nothing, 
right? Mm. Um, I I, th- I find it interesting, right? I'm glad we listened both listened to that same podcast because I, I can't remember which whether it was in the podcast or just further research as I got fascinated by this, like mm. colors and seeing colors mm. and and recognizing that you know humans not too long ago, right? So we don't even have to get into the whole like evolution, not evolution thing that has plagued the church, but uh, not even too long ago, a few thousand years ago, couldn't see the same colors that we see, hmm. or at least don't have the words to describe yeah. and differentiate right. colors the way that we would. Uh, and I can't remember which colors were some of them, whether it was blue or red, but one of those colors uh, they they noted and this is just really like, please, whoever's listening to kind of realize this is not real research. This is me like just playing around. But it was fascinating because I took that same color and actually typed it into a Bible app. And just to kind of say like, mm. when's the first time this this color actually is is described or talked about? And it actually kind of correlates to mm. some degree with the time mm. periods that the research shows that this color started to actually kind of be described and mm. used. Uh Again, what that means, I don't know. I just threw that out there because I thought it was exciting. Uh, and that's purely anecdotal, not real research whatsoever. But I, I think that that kind of second thing, right? So there is there is a movement for it. It is it pushes back against nihilism. It mm-hmm. it allows for hopefulness. And it also allows for, you know, I you and I offline were talking about kind of our similarities and our kind of upbringings. And uh, this, this, my listeners have probably heard talk about Pentecostalism at some level because that's that was deeply ingrained in me, and it's still a part of who I am. Uh, but you know, these things that in in theology we call it theophanic mm-hmm. signs, um, which can also be kind of described as the 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 spirit breaking into the world and doing things within the world that don't make sense within a modernistic framework, right? Mm-hmm. Like for Pentecostals, that that thing is is uh, speaking in tongues, right? Even healing, but we can that's a whole other kind of subsect to talk about. But just even the speaking in tongues, right? Because it has to do with language and the like. The modernist, uh, the modernist Pentecostal ideation was well, if we get enough recordings of people speaking in tongues and we start to kind of take both the the speaking in mm-hmm. tongues and also the interpretation of those tongues mm-hmm. we can do the modernistic work of yeah. pointing out the the phonetics the, the syllables that we hear and actually mapping out this language and trying to map it out and actually create like yeah. see the language that we're yeah. and of course that that went to absolutely nowhere because that that is not what that thing is right that's right <laughs> yeah. uh but but then the postmodern, you know, the well that may be true for you. That that speaking in tongues may be something for you, but it it ultimately has no no true meaning outside of that context. It 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 isn't even real, right? Whatever the language is, metamodernity actually kind of helps save even for Pentecostals the idea of speaking in tongues because of what you've just talked about, kind of the relationality and context. Well, it the it could that the idea. Sorry, that I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, yeah, no. Just the idea that this that there is a thing and the spirit is in breaking, and yet we may not be able to translate it with this kind of objectivity that we yeah. want in modernity, but it has more meaning than not, right? Yeah. So this is this is a rich thing, and it, it would it would take a lot to kind of parse out. And you know, people can can uh, come to their own conclusions on these sorts of things. But the way that I would look at it would be um, 
let's say, so I would say a very metamodern, let's say, approach to the idea or the phenomenon of speaking in tongues would be to have gone through each of these uh, orientations to it, right? So I grew up in a church, lots of speaking in tongues. It was a Pentecostal church. There was, there was a lot of, it's a charismatic church Um, now. So I'm very familiar with that. Uh, And so you might maybe initially move through a kind of maybe pre-modern naivete where you're just like, oh, wow, like, this is just exactly what it seems to be like. I'm kind of, you know, the 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 spirit is speaking through me and uh, people are right. going to interpret what I just said in sort of the divine language. Um, and then they could do this thing that you're talking about. And by the way, when I say all this, I don't mean that one actually does all these things. I mean that one right. can inhabit the perspective of all of right. these different angles. Right. So let's say one one knows that perspective because, you know, they were there. Another perspective is doing what you're saying of like, oh, okay, if you actually try to do that kind of research that you're describing, and then it shows that, no, wait a second, that doesn't work at all. And you study the anthropological literature and you find that there's this whole thing called glossolalia and that, you know, this shows up cross-culturally and actually there are certain repeated rhythmic patterns. And if you try to analyze it grammatically, there is no syntax, there's none of, you know, there's no semantic kind of content there. It's just sort of sounds, et cetera, et cetera. You can do sociological and anthropological comparison studies, et cetera. And all of that would seem to kind of undercut the experiential thing that you did in the kind of pre-modern right. naivete. And then you also embrace this sort of postmodern thing of like, well, you know, who's to say, and maybe I can do this anyway, and it's all totally relative, isn't it? And then I think finally, there's this sort of metamodern approach, which is aware of all of those things. And then it's like, this is an important aspect of my uh, religious spiritual life. And when I do it, I feel opened, I feel more whole, I feel more meaningful, I feel like I'm connecting to something. At the same time, I'm aware that it breaks down in kind of modern uh, objective sorts of studies. And so I'm not fooling myself that it, it is this thing, but it is still meaningful to me and I can still do it in a meaningful way while yeah. maintaining all of these different kind of perspectives at once. Now that's a very hard thing to do, mind you. So that's not gonna necessarily just catch on. Uh, it takes a lot yeah. of multi-perspectival juggling to be able to kind of do that. Um, and But I do wanna just emphasize something which I think could be an, a, a potential danger of people maybe misunderstanding what we're, what we're speaking about, which is that, um, I'm, I don't want to convey the notion that metamodernism somehow lets back in all this pre-modern stuff that has no objective basis because, you know, right. because um, I think that that could be that could be rather bad. So I think we also need to appreciate that, like, uh, and to tie in that thread about the colors changing, that there is meaningful changes and evolutions of thought that occur in human cognition and consciousness over over the millennia. Uh, and now we have a more robust whole technicolor rainbow that we can refer to, whereas, you know, 10,000 years ago, it was black, white, and red, um, and maybe some blue. Uh, uh, if that's, I think, I think that's it. Uh, yeah, maybe green anyway. that was missing. I don't remember yeah. which one it was. It was yeah. the wine dark sea, right? So anyway, but um, so, so we can appreciate that like new capacities and uh, perspectives, sensibilities, and uh, insights come online through cultural history. And we should make use of that, right? So I would find it, for example, I would feel like it would be very dangerous if people thought that uh, a, a takeaway from the possibilities of metamodernism is that we could ignore the fact that evolution is real. <laughs> you know, like uh, if a Christian was like, uh, the earth is 5,000 years old, and, but I'm a metamodernist. So, you know, I can like do that. I'd be like, wait a second. I'm not sure if that's the best application of metamodern 
thought. So I just wanted to make all those points at once yeah. and I may get some re response from you on that. Yeah, no, I think, I think what, I think by that, maybe trying to kind of filter that into to this conversation, the way that we usually talk in this podcast, I think it's, it's in some sense, the recognition that metamodernity doesn't ignore science, right? Like it doesn't yeah. ignore the work that kind of looks towards objectivity. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't say, it doesn't lead us back to, to fideism, right? It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't lead us back to ignoring logic and reason mm -hmm. because it, it, it failed as the ultimate thing within modernity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't lead us back to just to either it itself or the post-modernity of ignoring it completely. Right. Uh, it, it again tries to find, okay, this does have its place and it can be a part of the greater narrative, the, mm -hmm. the meta narrative of the way that we engage within the world. It is as valid as the context, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I know that that conversation is is difficult for a lot of Christians, but unfortunately, I think that conversation, you know, this is going to take us, this could take us down another rabbit hole, which probably isn't for this, right? But the whole evolution, not evolution, 6,000, you know, I, I tend to find, especially in working with students, still uh and and in various places that i still work with i, I get quite an age range now mm -hmm. of, of students which is different from where i was before it was primarily undergraduates mm -hmm. but even still i find that anecdotally here the issue isn't even about science or not science uh the science of whether or not it's six thousand years or or millions of years has little to do with the conversation and more to do with the need for a certainty of a mm -hmm. of an interpretation in order for one to be um quote unquote safe in their kind mm -hmm. of salvific yeah uh experience right mm -hmm. like i have to know this so that i know that i am this mm -hmm. that tends to be more of the conversation than for Christians, then let's talk about the science or let's talk about yeah. what this actually is within its translation or yeah. the worldview presented within this conversation of Genesis 1 and 2, ignoring contradictions between Genesis 1 and 2 and the order of creation, like all those things. I don't even, I don't even know if it's really a a modern versus postmodern versus metamodern no, reading I, as much as yeah. it is a certainty and and how do I how do I well I guess in some sense it is a kind of a modern question because it we are asking of course is this thing true right uh, and well, but but you're getting at something also that's that's important which is actually kind of a postmodern insight right which is that before people are even asking is it true they're asking something much more psychologically relevant which is do i feel safe what kind of person am i uh is there meaning to life etc um i've found both in people with people that i've spoken to as well as in my own experience that as soon as i know that the implications are um amenable to a positive way of being in the world uh of taking on a certain idea that idea is no longer intellectually a problem right uh, it's oh, sort of right. like, like if someone comes at me with an idea of like, oh, well, so, you know, uh, the, the big bang theory, you know, might not be right or whatever. And then I'll be like, well, wait a second. Now, so much of what gets triggered isn't just let's debate the facts. It's what about my world model? What about reality? What yes. about all of my truth and exactly. all that? And that's what yeah. comes up. 
And then once that stuff can be assured, then it's like, oh yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. That's that, I'm 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 on board with that. Well, and I think that that's a very profound and important point when we're talking about uh, you know what is true. Uh, I also think that um, you know this would also probably get us into a whole other domain. And I'd love to, I mean, these conversations are great. So if you ever want to pick this up again sometime, I'd be very happy to, but like um, it gets to the issue of like, what is the role of, uh, you know, theological education and, and, and what's the role of a pastor in educating their congregations and what's the right. role of, you know, all that right. stuff. And so for me, the spiritual journey is not an easy one. It's not about, Oh, life is, is feels good. Therefore I know that this is true. And if what is most of the time coming up for people around making certain assertions about truth is they're needing to protect their world, um, I have I, I feel like we're not uh, comfortable enough accepting that the spiritual life is one of profound struggle, deconstruction, falling apart, coming to new insights. Um, and ironically, you mentioned it earlier, right? People are always talking about don't put God in a box, but that's always what people want to do because to put God outside the box is to disrupt their worldview. It's to right. disrupt their right. world model. And that is so disorienting as I can attest to, as I've gone through these uh, existential crises multiple times and had to reformulate and reconfigure a worldview. Um, but the point I would want to make and the thing I'd want to encourage uh, for your listeners is that like, that's the essence of like spiritual growth is like deepening in the wisdom of reality, deepening in the wisdom of the nature of the divine and the sacred. And um, if we think that the beliefs that we hold when we're five, six, seven, eight are going to hold until we're, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, then I don't think we're appreciating the developmental challenges that like a real grappling with the nature of this sublime, majestic universe, you know, what that's about. Uh, yeah. And uh, I just thought I'd, yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I like that. Well, I, I say that in the sense of like Gregory of Nyssa, like again, we talked about offline, right? This this early church father, theologian, uh, mystic in his own right, you know, makes the claim of going into darkness as mm -hmm. this going into the mystery is the progression of the Christian life and it is mm -hmm. the deepening of the Christian life. which And the dark night of the it. soul, which comes with it as well. Right, yeah, and, yeah. and it's it comes with the unknowing, but also the being learning to be at peace in the unknowing of God, which is, mm. a, which is hard. I mean, kind of going back to what you said before, and then I kind of thought, and I don't think we have time to explore this notion, mm -hmm. but, you know, back to the kind of the evolution thing, mm -hmm. often when talking with students, because, you know, it, it was, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to be in a theology class. This is this, right? That's not what I do. That, that would be kind of antithetical to my theological training and what I'm doing in a, in a, you know, the pedagogy of theological class. But what's interesting is oftentimes in those conversations, you kind of said it, and I'm going to kind of put it in this, this way, when talking about like, is evolution, like, can we have a theistic evolution? Oftentimes, if it's paired first with the question of whether or not evolution is true, can you be saved? Right. Like if you kind of like put these two together, like mm. is your salvation dependent upon the belief system of how you believe in in the the origins of, of the earth and the origins of humanity? Is your quote unquote salvation, your salvific stance, is it dependent upon your belief system here? 
I would say 90 to 95% of the time, especially students who are really honest and they start kind of processing this question, they all of a sudden go, no, right? Like, no, that like that's not one of those things, whether we want to talk about it in kind of doctrinal statements, it's it's certainly not uh, in the Nicene Creed. It's certainly not a part of uh, some of those kind of essentialists that people try to kind of create here, the essential beliefs of the of the mm-hmm. church. It's not in those. And all of a sudden, that question at least provides the quote-unquote safety to actually explore those concepts with with being more intellectually open to them, regardless if they land back to the kind of addition, their their you know original side or if they've they shift because it 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 pulls away from the point that they always thought that it had to be right it it, mm. it has to be this or nothing mm-hmm. and i say that to say here's the other kind of question i'm saying i wish we kind of could explore but we we need to land the plane at some point uh <laughs> you know pentecostal has loved this uh i'm if you hadn't heard this i'd be surprised but i'm sure you probably have like at some point like especially when you know the 90s and early 2000s it was very common for pastors particularly in salvific calls at the end of of churches mm-hmm. to kind of say do you know that you know that you know mm. that you are saved mm. right and that question especially for me as someone who then went on to you know to college and then multiple degrees later kind of reflecting on that question realized why even as a kid I was really uncomfortable mm-hmm. with that question. And I wasn't uncomfortable because I I thought there was something wrong, you know, salvifically in my relationality with God. But rather when when trying to apply a modernistic framework to a question that says, do you know that you know that you know? Mm-hmm. Ultimately I could never do it. Right. There was no empirical data. There was no scientific kind of structure. There was no, there was nothing that could say to me, yes, I know in a modernistic framework that I am saved. Mm-hmm. Because modernism has nothing to do with the way that we deal with our kind of religious, spiritual uh, belief life. Right. I mean, I, that's a grandize, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But then post modernity did not did not help me either, right? To say, do I know that I know that I know said, well, maybe in my own kind of relativistic belief system, I can say yes, but that has no bearing on a greater reality outside of myself. So why Mm -hmm. does it even matter if I can say yes, right? Like it it doesn't really do me any good to answer that question as yes or no, right? Mm -hmm. And so both frameworks ultimately failed at this like very pertinent evangelistic question mm-hmm. that was framed that I do, uh, like I said, I don't think we have time to explore it and I've never explored it within a meta modern kind of, so I don't think I've got a way of talking about it now, but mm-hmm. it's just interesting how those, those kind of languages of the church and of the religious kind of spirituality that we, that we do, yeah. uh, use, we sometimes come at odds with that language within our worldview because sure. we've never really kind of recognize what we're actually asking and what we're as like you were saying as pastors as seminarians as professors helping the church kind of grasp at okay well if we use this framework here's what we're dealing with if we use this framework what which framework is really helpful for the church right mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think being aware of the frameworks is just you know 
something I'm comfortable saying, certainly that that meta modern a meta modern approach emphasizes is be aware of the framework um and 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 use it um to to make sense of these things uh you know uh like like for example you know even even in a modernist context let alone a postmodernist postmodernist one what does it mean to be saved right that language going back to a, a pre-modern conception of a two worlds mythology that there's like a heaven above and that my body you know will I'll be buried but then it'll come back together and I'll be raptured and you know and like most modern minded people would be like well that's not that doesn't happen so then it's like well what do we mean by saved and then there's that element of it um, which is really interesting to consider, like to try to do metamodern theology, right? Because we want to, I, I think we would want to try to maintain some of these core ideas of, of oh, salvation, yeah. which is pretty, pretty key. And like the work of Christ and that sort of stuff. Well, how do we understand these things in a metamodern way? Um, but then also maybe like to be able to apply a postmodern lens that kind of sees like the very fact that like the pastor at the end of the altar call at the youth group retreat or whatever would ask that question. What purpose does it serve? What What's the context that it's a part of that it's fulfilling a certain function rather than going a theological, it's sort of like, if I kind of deconstruct what goes on in this environment of, oh yeah, we got the rock band playing and they went from this kind of music upbeat to get people going. And then they moved into worship music to really arouse the emotion. And then someone spoke for a, a period of time. And then it ended with this very kind of inward gazing, like, you know, gut wrenching sense of analyzing my own fallenness and the need for Christ. And then for that to end after the altar call with, do you know, you know, you know, is like, are you demanding of some kind of just uh commitment to something that fulfills a particular social role in this community that finds mm. this kind of certainty really important and to justify the whole thing that goes on in those kind of retreat contexts or uh, or convention contexts right that this sort of industry exists in this sort of context to to keep perpetuating itself so like those are questions we'd want to ask too um so anyway there's a by interrogating the frameworks you kind of you know um you bring those to bear on all of this stuff. And uh, I think that that's really important. And um, I think that for me, I guess I'll just say that for me, what's been my driving quest is to bring in line my sense of meaning in existence with reality in a way that I can find uh, believable and coherent. Um, and so that 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 it sometimes demands demolishing earlier meaning-making structures that reach a limit and then reformulating them at a higher level of complexity and nuance and contextual awareness uh, and then that'll serve for a time and then that then you have to break that apart but as long as you're recognizing that you're moving forward into that mystery that you're getting more of that mystery revealed in the process by becoming more aware of all of these frameworks all these different perspectives all these lenses all this information about this sacred reality um, that to me is, is the drive, the spiritual quest. And, um, and yeah, I feel like if it were framed more, uh, in those terms that there is an invitation to, to wrestle with God a bit, uh, and to deconstruct your God concept and, and find that God is always bigger than your last God construct, your, your last God concept, your last image. Um, I think that that is that mystical uh, invitation to the heart of reality that uh, I think a metamodern Christianity would be inviting us to. Which is which is interesting in the sense that it's it's also some of these pre-modern kind of, it, it has kind of congru congruity with some of our early church fathers in that way, mm. right? Um, 
maybe not in the same way, clearly, because they they aren't holding these different structures of modernism and postmodernism in their head. Sure. But the same kind of question is is Gregory of Nyssa, is pseudo Dionysius, right? Mm-hmm. It's these it's these early uh, church fathers who who are wrestling with some of these uh, apophatic explorations mm-hmm. of God trying to figure out what they can't actually say about God. So they mm-hmm. have a greater understanding of what could be said, but what mm-hmm. they still can't say. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really is beautiful, but it is, uh, it is a space that is, is, is hard. It's a space that, yeah. that comes with uncertainty. It's a space that comes with for a time having to, and saying this in a kind of Christian context, it has to come to a place of learning to be at peace with God amidst unknowing and uncertainty and and recognizing that those things are not what binds your relationship with God, uh, meaning certainty, but rather the relationship itself is there in the exploration of who God is, is what God invites us to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is a, a a frightening thing, I think, for some. I think it's a scary thing. I think there's a lot of fallacies that come along with it. This slippery slope. Well, you're just going to make God however you want to make God. And, mm. and no, again, we could, and and this is me, but we can go down a whole long path of like, okay, what do we do with the construct of of Christianity, of of recognizing tradition, of recognizing mm-hmm. you know all these valuable, again, valuable contexts that we're not just yeah. throwing away right. within these deeper conversations. But it's also recognizing that our our own limited nature, um, which I think again, meta modernity does great at holding the hands of, right? Recognizing our own limits, uh, recognizing something being there, and then kind of the pushing forward towards mm-hmm. that. Yeah, always holding the context that sincere irony, always holding that context that we're never going to make it. And again, I, I could claim can go back to scripture and make my own claims, right? With Paul saying that he he now saw through a, a glass dimly or a mirror darkly and recognizing what he's trying to do there and saying, this is not yet fully, I, I don't fully get it. And also kind of to the point of, I'm not going to fully get it here and now. That's mm-hmm. not this, that's not the point of this space or our conversations or what we're doing. Sure. Yeah. I, just one last thought is that, um, there, a lot of this then starts to get into the issue of what's often kind of described as the esoteric versus the exoteric aspects of a religious tradition. You know, like um, like these things are hard. The, the, the a mystical orientation towards reality it makes many demands. It makes cognitive demands. It makes demands on your uh, emotional uh, state. It makes demands on your time, etc. Um, and uh, so oftentimes there's this question of like, is this Will most people be be into this? Will they, will this scale? Uh, and uh, you know that's a legitimate question to ask. Um, but it's sort of like um, it's it's a different question than about asking about the truth, right? It's about like how can we make this uh, you know accessible? Um, and yeah. uh, and it's sort of like well let's let's translate Hamlet into a simple version that everyone can get. It's like well maybe maybe it's not Hamlet anymore. Um, so there's like an right. esoteric exoteric aspect that that's very important. And that relates to this last thought, which I want to get across, which is that um, just to to be mindful of the fact that 
there are these profound challenges uh, posed by modernity and post-modernity to traditional religious worldviews. And that creates a certain kind of cognitive dissonance and tension that people are going to be looking for answers that nominally suggest that they've moved through them so that they can go back to the way that the puzzle is supposed to look on the cover. Um, and I just want to, I guess, stress the idea that like, if you're really going to kind of get the metamodern approach, you have to really get the modern approach and you have to really get the postmodern approach right. before you can do this metamodern thing. Right. And so um, I, I become wary as metamodernism is gaining more awareness and there's going to be more and more and more people talking about it that, um, you know, it's going to be used for kind of, you know, uh, ways of reclaiming certain kinds of ways of thinking about the world, which don't grapple with the problematization that that occurred in modernity and postmodernity. And 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 I wanted to name that because it's hard, you know, and that's right. that might be an uh, esoteric aspect of of a theology that doesn't have to be for everyone. You know, uh, maybe the question of how do we scale a metamodern theology isn't the right one, but it, maybe it's what does a metamodern theology look like? Uh, because that's a valuable question to seekers, to 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 you know, uh, you know, people struggling for making a meaningful sense of their existence in the face yeah. of reality. Yeah, I, I like that in sense of like what you're saying there is kind of like you're you tried to uh, apply a kind of meta modernist theological uh, uh, dis discipleship kind of approach is not going to build large churches. Right? <laughs> yeah, you're it may, not it may going, very well not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're you're not going to to in mass right, uh, but there is definitely groups of particularly i would say millennials and gen maybe some gen x gen z who who and and maybe this is crossing hairs that i shouldn't but who have kind of made their move towards liturgical spaces or mm -hmm. for, for some of that reason because there is a, i mean literally you know think about the sacraments and the mystery right uh the mysterium of 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 the liturgical churches that is actually bringing back to bear mystery yeah. and bringing back to bear, you know, some of the kind of like deeper, we don't have to answer why we don't have to answer. Right. I mean, why the Eucharist is the Eucharist as the Eucharist is right. Because it's a mystery and mm. we're okay with that, but it's not to say that we're not thinking about it because we've got lots mm. of great ways to talk about it and what it means and how it affects us and what it does in us. Um, yeah. Yeah, not building big churches with modern theology. Yeah, it's, it's an like... interesting. Well, it's an interesting issue though too, because you name this dynamic and the numbers are are there, and uh, it, you know that all this kind of exodus away from churches and and certainly mainline traditions at the moment, um, and the the massive rise of spiritual but not religious and non affiliated the nuns and all that. Um, right. There's an interesting aspect in which some of that I feel like is ripe, fertile ground for, you know, people, people are people, they're spiritually hungry, they're interested, but it's just that maybe these uh, answers that come from a more kind of fixed pre-modern creed aren't, aren't uh, the sorts of answers that people are finding, um, uh, you know, believable or, 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 or fit the needs of, of their understanding of reality. And so that does put a burden on uh, 
developing more complex forms of talking about uh, theology and, and Christianity that could be amenable to those demographics if it were presented to them in these terms. So on the other hand, you know, there's, there's that, there's that component to it is that there's this surge of younger people who are looking for liturgical spaces and mystery and community and a sense of meaning and all this stuff that um, that this way of looking could actually be really important. I actually wrote a yeah. book called Emergentism, uh, a religion of complexity for a metamodern world. That's all about kind of that issue. And it's huh. like, what would what would a what would a metamodern religion and orientation look like and and all that stuff? Um, maybe not uh, the sort of book that uh, would be as interesting to folks, uh, but uh, as the other one that I mentioned, but, um, but yeah, these, these are really important issues. And the last thing I guess I'll say on the, on the, on the, on this front is, you know, there's also pastors and there's professors and there's sort of the, the church intelligentsia, you know, the, the people who go through divinity school and learn the languages and really, really, uh, struggle with these issues that, you know, in their pastoral role, that's not that stuff isn't as important, but for them personally, you know, they're thinking, they're wondering, they're asking questions. Um, and so I think that even if this sort of stuff doesn't get preached from the pulpit, it might be of you know incredible value uh, to to those sorts of folks in making the transition real for them to be able to uh, sort of inhabit the religious sphere in a way that they can really fully embrace rather than being like, Ooh, that doesn't sit right. Or yeah. I don't really know about that. So um, I think that's another need for yeah. this way of thinking about things. Yeah. Well, I, I will say uh, those who lasted the hour and a half <laughs> with us, uh, you're our true nerds that, that are, you know, interested in, in thinking through these complex ideas. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you, Brendan, for being here. I think it's been really helpful to kind of explore maybe kind of, uh, dispel some some myths around kind of these words and also kind of help people see a different way, right? And and it's it's unique because one of the things I love about this podcast is, and maybe one of the things I love about metamodernity is you and I don't have to fully see eye to eye within sure. this kind of way of thinking, this way of engagement. But but as you kind of noted with metamodernity, it's really important to be aware of yeah. these systems, of the way that they work. And a way that these dialogues happen, because that awareness ultimately helps push us forward versus kind of keeping us in uh, yeah. dogmatic spaces that ultimately end up kind of harming ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, I, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, you've kind of thrown out some of the books. Is there any other kind of place people can get in contact with you or anything else in case they want to reach out and ask more questions? Yeah, I would love it. Uh, I'm always looking to you know hear, hear from people. Um, my name is Brendan Graham Dempsey. And if you go to brendangrahamdempsey.com, uh, you can contact me through there and uh, find out about all the other books um, that I've written and the podcast that I do called Metamodern Spirituality and whatnot. But yeah, most information about me will be there. Um, and if you're interested you know, in metamodernism, yeah, this book that I just published a few days ago is, is an attempt to be an introduction to the whole uh, conversation. So go check that out. It's called Metamodernism or the Cultural Logic of Cultural Logics. Uh, and it's a, it's a bit of a ride, but uh, I think it's a hopefully very accessible introduction to the topic. Perfect. Well, thanks, Brendan. And maybe we'll have you back in the future and have some of those rabbit trails that we talked about. I'd love it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. So we'll, we'll chat soon. Yeah.